When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tracy Koga, and thanks for downloading this podcast from iLikeYou.com. If you can, give us a follow or subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at iLikeYou.com. Now, let's get started. everyone, welcome to Hugh at Home. I'm Tracy Koga. Languishing, re-entry anxiety, fear of flying, fear of crowds, fear of masks. Well, these are all of the things that we are suffering from right now. We are in a third lockdown. And hey, us mothers got robbed from another Sunday brunch. But we hold our chins up high and forge on. And today, you'll meet some women who are doing just that. They're facing incredible odds to find their true identity, love, and sometimes a son. My first guest is my good friend, Susan Lowen. She is nominated for the outstanding performance of an actress in a short film for the Actra Manitoba Awards. She produced and wrote A Mother's Love. And here's our opening chat on Hugh at Home. Well, we may be in a lockdown and not being able to celebrate, but there are some awards happening. And let's just say it's uh, Manitoba's version of the Oscars. And I am very honored to have one of the nominees, not, a, not the winner, but hey, I'm just putting beds, uh, bets on this, Sue. But uh, Susan Lowen is nominated for Most Outstanding uh, Role. Female. Female lead. lead actress in a short film. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. totally bitch butchered that. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, best five. actress in a short film, right? <laughs> I know. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Know, you. In all Thank of this, there is a silver lining, and, uh, and it's for a film that is, mm-hmm. well, I mean, close to your heart is not even the beginning of it. Uh, you lived through, you breathed through, <laughs> You are still living through this whole story. Uh, The title is A Mother's Love, and it is an amazing journey that you personally took and then brought it to the big screen or the small screen, whatever. It it is such an impressive uh, piece of work, Susan, and you've been a longtime member and well-respected in the local film industry, but um, first of all, what is it like for you now to have yourself being nominated? Uh, very humbling because the crowd of actors that I'm with are, are amazing. They're all beautiful actors, they're, they're strong. So it's just, yeah, it's very humbling to be even nominated. 
Oh, okay, so let's get into this story, A Mother's Love. And it starts off with some very sobering facts about meth. And this is about your own son's personal addiction. Uh, the facts themselves, and this was in 2018, were mm -hmm. incredible. What are they now in like 2021? They've exponentially increased because of um, the, the hopelessness that people are feeling, uh, loss of jobs, and uh, mental health. There's no mental health for these people. Like, there's so many people that are in need, and the, the need is greater than what we have. Yeah. So well. again, it's... Okay, so we get into the story, and, uh, you know, it starts off with your son and, I guess, his partner, and they have a baby, and then it moves into your own personal journey on trying to find him. In that, there's, you know, some certain points in the film that I, I kind of want to highlight because not only does it touch uh, a mother's heart, but it, it really touches anybody's, and it really resonates on the desperate situation of these people that are addicted to crystal meth. So you go to the hospital how many times that getting uh, that call? About 120 times over four and a half years. And um, I mean, when you think about that, it's really only 30 times a year. But I was, it was in Winnipeg, it was in Portage, and it was in Grant. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, every time, it's not him. It, it, yeah. Like, and, and go, having to go through that grief and, and I guess, relief too, right? Well, it, it's a horrible feeling because you actually want to see your child dead because you know at least you can see them and their suffering's over. Like, it's, it's, um, it sort of goes against every maternal instinct that you think people have. But, um, yeah. And then it traces your experience of actually going on the streets at night mm -hmm. in yeah. some of the, okay, a little bit more iffy areas of our own city, holding a picture of your son and going up to total strangers and, and seeing the desperation in you and have you seen my son? Yeah. It's hard and I would, go, I would go out between two and four in the morning because my husband would be asleep and we by this time had our grandson who was a baby and so they were both sleeping so I would go out through the door because I disconnected the alarm so I could go out the garage and they'd never hear me because a garage door opening and closing is white noise. It's something that you don't hear an alarm you hear but a garage door, no one. So, and that was the time when I go, because that's the time when they're the most active. Mm -hmm. They try to sleep during the day and because they don't want to sleep at night because they could, they themselves could be stabbed or, or killed or robbed or, so they tend to be walking all night and try and sleep during the day. So, and because of work I had done with sexual assaults, um, I was able, well, on this, when I was on the street, I actually ran into one of the girls and, um, who are amazing people. And she was the one who told me, who found an address for me, the first place to go to. She found his name. She told me how to dress and how to act. And if it hadn't been for her, I probably wouldn't have been able to go into the places that I did. Well, yes, and speaking of the places that you did go into, uh, I mean, it would scare anybody it, it, at any time of day, but uh, what, 
what was it like for you or, or what kind of emotions were going through your head when you're entering a drug den, when you're putting yourself in jeopardy? Was it just the sheer motivation of finding out where your son was or yeah. was it something else? Um, you know what? It's, that's an interesting question because when we were actually doing the film, I actually fought with one of the people who's helping direct it. And she kept saying, well, you would never do that because like, it doesn't make sense that you wouldn't be afraid. And I said, but I wasn't afraid because I was going in with a focus and the focus was to find him. I knew what I had to do when I got in there. I was told how to, how to go in there because it was dark. It wasn't lit. And, um, and then, uh, so you, you know, you had to take steps and take steps that way. And so you followed, you've, mentally followed how the person was taking you down and so that you could come out because no one was going to give you a way out and because of that um i wasn't i never thought about it i just wanted to see him and if he wasn't there then i would talk to the person there and if he wasn't there i would just leave so i if fear had if i had been thinking and was fearful maybe but it was i was laser focused Wow. I didn't want to know he was alive. I didn't want to talk to him. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know he was alive. And there, there is a, a happy ending to this story because you were reunited with your son yeah. in yeah. real life. And, yeah. uh, you know, and now it's been three years now since the, the movie and everything like that. How has the relationship blossomed and how is your grandson or son now because you adopted him? You know, it's an interesting dynamic because he knows that Jason's his dad, right? Because mm-hmm. um, he was always told he was adopted. And, but he has decided that's his brother for now. That's, that's what he likes because when Jason got reintroduced back to him, he told him he'd raised him. You can't tell a four-year-old you raised them when you didn't because someone lied. And the only person who would lie had to be me, right? Because his dad wouldn't lie to him. So he, the poor little kid had to sort of murgle this whole thing. And in the end, we went through pictures and talked to him. And he, and, I, and he said, well, he lied. And I said, but he didn't lie to hurt you. He said it because it hurt him so much that he couldn't do it. And he loved you so much. But he's four, he now turned five. And he said, no, he lied. Okay. So he goes home and he stands in the middle of the living room because we'd gotten back and Jason had come over and he goes, okay, that's my dad that's my mom and you might be my dad but you're my brother come on jason let's play and that's been it it hurt jason because it's his son Mm -hmm. and he looked at me and i said it's his reality griffin will change what he wants to call us as he goes through his life but for now this is what he wants and so it works the power of a five-year-old it is so simple if it was at us adults can you yeah. imagine? Like it would be fights, it would be, it would be turmoil, it would be drama. Oh, yeah. and, it, and it's you know it it is so sweet and it's so beautiful. And and how is Jason today? He is doing really really well. He is working now with construction mm-hmm. and um, in the little palace that I'm in, and <laughs> he loves it. He's gotten raises because his work ethic is amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, he's doing a lot of work with uh, recovery and beyond. He's, okay. he, has, he likes 
different factions of that group versus other groups, which is mm-hmm. everyone finds their own niche. Mm-hmm. He's very involved with it now, which is really good. Um, he showed the film. <gasps> Wonderful. So when, when they have a group session, they have to share. Mm-hmm. So he asked if it would be all right if he shared the film. And I said, well, it's, it's your life if you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And the, the start of the film has always bothered him because they never did meth with the baby. We had the baby. They didn't. And I said, well, but it's a story. It's short. There has the things tie in. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> if it was so a he, feature so, length, the feature length will have the full story. Exactly. You <laughs> could do forever. I know. So they, so they, he went to the group and he, and he showed the film, like he downloaded it and showed it. And he said, mom, it was amazing. Like it changed the entire dynamic of the group. And he said, there wasn't a dry eye there, but he said, I don't think I broke anyone. <laughs> <laughs> And then they asked if they could use the film on their website. So he came back and he asked, and I said, well, Jay, the, the film was made to educate people. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really why, why it was made. And it was just, and when he first saw the film, his thing was, he said, it's not a film about drugs. It's a film about love. Yeah. And um, he said, all of the people in the group got it, oh, which nice. is you know, an amazing thing. So I said, do it. Like, if you want to do it, do it. So, yeah. That's the best thing, really. And I mean, through all of this, and I mean, you've moved on too as well. And I mean, created a life with with Finn and everything too. Um, What would it be like if you never did find Jason? You know, uh, I have Griffin mm-hmm. and I have to say, if it hadn't been for him, I wouldn't have made it. No. Because I would be broken by the time I got home. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't be upset or sad because you got a baby. And like the baby doesn't ask for that. The baby just wants you to go, ah! <laughs> so I'd get home and then this little thing, I'd go downstairs and I'd cry for an hour, however long I needed to. And then about, mm-hmm. I'd sleep for an hour, hour and a half, and then Griffin would get up and he'd wrap his little arms around me. And as soon as he did that, it was like, okay, oh, I'm good. Wow. Okay, so the awards are on Saturday, May 15th. Yes. And they'll be streaming live on Facebook yeah. and YouTube yeah. on the Man- yeah. on the Actra Manitoba Manitoba website. Website, yes. So fingers hmm. crossed. Uh, I, I guess I have to ask, what are you gonna wear? <laughs> Oh, I was thinking maybe pearls and, yes. you know, I'm not sure. I'll have something lovely on. And I'll even have my hair done in makeup. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it can happen. No. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm going to be watching. It's going to be live at 7 p.m. And, you know, yeah. congratulations not only to you, Susan, but to all the nominees and all the people that work so hard in our city and in the film industry to entertain us or to educate us or just give us that, you know, moment of, hey, we're not living in this pandemic and everything else, uh, you know, making our world just a little bit easier. Um, I'm going to ask you, though, I'm going to leave it with uh, one scene that just always, uh, it really touched me and it made me think, too. Um, Mm -hmm. It's the scene where you, you get the call and you are so certain it's your son and you have to go and identify the body and 
I guess maybe it's the 131 time again. Um, but that scene is so riveting when it's not him, but you just break down. And yeah. you just say that, I don't know the exact lines, but you're upset, but upset because this is because somebody else's child. it's not my son. It's someone else's son, and they'll never know. Yeah. And it's, it's the hardest thing to live with because you, you're always looking. Mm -hmm. And until you get finality, either they show up on the doorstep, like Jason did, who, you know, had couldn't live like that anymore and took the steps to get better or they die. And at least you you get a chance to say goodbye. My thing was you just you just want to tell them that you love them and it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That's it. I was so sure. I just wanted to be able to hold it one more time. But it's not him. It's somebody else's child. <laughs> That's it. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for spending this time. Unconditional love. It's everything. It is a mother's love. And uh, we hope to see another brilliant short film or maybe a feature film from you, you know, soon. <laughs> I know you've always, you always have something brewing. <laughs> always. <laughs> always, always. Well, take care and uh, fingers crossed. May 15th, yeah, 7 p.m. Exactly. The exactly. Atra Manitoba Awards. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you. <laughs>
grieve while you are isolated and you don't have the usual rituals in place to help you create that community and give you that support. So my heart goes out to all of you who have also experienced a really challenging loss. And what I wanted to say today is I wanted to emphasize taking care of yourself is so important at this time. And of course, it can be one of those things that slips away as we try to care for our business, our family, our work, our kids, while we're also trying to deal with loss. And these three things help me the most. The first one is to really scale back. Just take off anything off the to-do list that is extra or you know, extraneous, anything that is just really unnecessary right now, it's done. Just cross it off the to-do list and really applaud yourself for getting one or two things done a day. You know, if you've showered, if you've made a meal, like celebrate that. That's a big deal right now if you're going through loss. I would also say the second thing that I do is I do try to make sure that I'm caring for myself sleep being the most important. I know if you're anything like me, if I don't get enough sleep, everything falls apart. So if you can just make sure to be getting to bed on time, sometimes when you're going through grief and loss, sleep can be really challenging. So uh, I do a little bit of yoga in the evening to try and calm my mind, calm my body. And, uh, you know, anything that you do that's your usual ritual, step it up, take your baths, um, really, really be tender with yourself right now. And the third thing that I do when I am uh, going through loss is I, I make sure that I set aside time to really sit with that loss, feel all the feelings. I went for a drive yesterday. I got a tea and I went for a drive with the dog in the car and I just, I drove around for about an hour and I didn't have music on or a podcast. I really just was sitting with that loss. I cried a bit. Um, and it's important to take that time as well to not, um, shove away those feelings and think, you know, you're just going to be overwhelmed and that grief won't be able to stop. It will. Trust me, that grief will stop if you let it, if you let it sit in your body, if you breathe through it, if you just even take some time to name it, you know, oh my gosh, there's sadness, there's loss, there's anxiety there's bear. <laughs> um, anyway, those are just three tips that I have for taking care of yourself when you're going through a difficult time. Uh, again, my heart goes out to anyone who is experiencing loss. And let's be honest, we've all experienced loss during this time. Uh, I'm not talking just simply about the death of a loved one, but we've all lost freedom hope, um, a sense of purpose, a sense of the future, a sense of safety. So really take the time to honor those losses, sit with them. They will, by doing that, it will help you move forward. Be tender with yourself, take care of yourself so that you can take care of your people. And I can take care of my dog.
welcome back to Hugh at Home. Well, when Grace Thompson was transcribing her mother's journal, she never thought it would be about herself. But Chiro Sakura is exactly that. I'll sit down now with author Grace Thompson in Vancouver, and she shares her own personal story. It is always so special when you read a book and you are actually in it. Well, maybe not in it, so to speak, but I am so happy and honored that we have Grace Echo Thompson here, and you are, Grace, the, an amazing book that you have done, and I guess in honor of your mother, and also, but also, I think it's your personal journey, too. Is it, Am I correct in this book? For sure. It was something that I have to resolve. Yes, and the title is so beautiful, and I, hopefully I don't butcher it, but... Uh, Chiro Sakura, and maybe tell us more about what that title means to you. Okay. Well, it's uh, important to me because during the time when mother was uh, dealing with uh, her whole life, at the end of her life, before the end of her life, she had lost so many members of her family. Like her, uh, she had lost uh, everybody except my, two, my younger sister and myself and my brother, my younger brother, but my younger brother also died before she did. So she had lost her two sons and her husband before she died. But um, during the time that she was dealing with the fact of her life that uh, was totally shattered through internment, because my parents were married in 1930, 2930, and uh, my father went to Japan to marry her. He had already been in Canada for a while. And so in marrying, they uh, uh, they were expecting to have a good life in Vancouver. And he got himself a good job that was related to what his older brothers were doing, which was the, uh, the fisher communities of the white, Japanese, and indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Codfish Cooperative Society. And my father became a buyer. So he lived in Vancouver, and I used to see him going to work every morning in a nice three-piece suit. With a, as a child, I remember the watch that was <laughs> that he used to put in his his vest pocket. So those are the memories that you have as a child. So all that was destroyed less than a less than a dozen years when they were moved into the internment site. So. Uh, when my mother was at the end, towards the end of her life, I think she was very angry, emotionally. She was throwing things around sometimes. Mm-hmm. And my mother was a very educated, incredible woman. So, so by do, doing that, I think she, she resolved herself, her feelings, when he, she started to write her memoir. But then she remembered the uh, haiku of a Japanese haiku master, Ryokan, and uh, she wrote it in her memoir. And it was, uh, in, in Japanese, it was Chiru Sakura, which means falling Sakura. The remaining Sakura is also a falling Sakura. So she said, she said, when I realized that I was still living, and that's when she wrote the haiku in her memoir. So for me, that, even though it was a sad, um, use of that haiku, uh, I felt that uh, uh, it just touched me. And uh, so I decided to use that 
because I was also a descendant of the Sakura. So uh, help that my turn is coming to you. Oh, well, and through this all, Grace, what did you learn? Like, I mean, you, know, you talk about certain memories about your father, and obviously, you know, you have good memories of your mother. When you're reading her story and learning more about the history, how did that affect you? Well, I had always thought that I wanted to leave something for my sons to understand their history because I intermarried. And so, uh, uh, and my mother, my mother, both, my, both their grandparents, my mother and my father were gone when they were, when they were little kids. So therefore, they had no idea about our history. So I was starting to write things down to give to them. And then when my mother gave me her memoir, and, uh, and it was all written in Japanese, so I had to translate it. And in translating it, because she told me to translate it and give it to the kids. So in translating it, I realized that uh, that uh, uh, that it was uh, very um, uh, important to me to not to, not just to my kids. And uh, a lot of memories came back through that. And uh, and I realized too that you know even in your sharing a life together. Uh, different generations live it differently. Mm-hmm. We interpret things differently. So when I read her memoir, I decided that I need to say something beside hers that uh, that uh, how I had lived those years uh, living beside her. But uh, uh, the things that were important to her were not as important to me. I had my own problems. You know, during, during these years. So I decided that I have to write to give to my son, not yet, not only my mother's memoir, mm-hmm. but my own. So the intention of, at the beginning was only to write uh, to read to my kids. I wasn't planning to publish a book. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk to you now. You did mention that you did intermarry, so you, your husband was not Japanese. Um, and you talk about a time in Winnipeg when you're living in River Heights and, and you're having your, your two sons. You mentioned, and I hope I'm quoting it correctly, you envisioned your life like out of a white magazine, living a white life, but you would never be white because you're Japanese. Was that a turning point? And you do mention that that was a turning point and your realization of why identity and culture are so important. Yeah. I think, um, you know, uh, I never thought about, after I had um, started working, I was mixing in the larger community. Finally, I was feeling I was part of them. And then I, and then I married someone who was working at the same place as me. And, uh, and I never thought anything, you know, of course I did in the sense that I was one of the earliest intermarriages, mm-hmm. you know. So of course it was always there, but, but I had no difficulty. Uh, incredibly, my parents and his parents totally accepted it. We had no arguments, and that was really rare, mm-hmm. you know. And especially too that it was 
about 10 years after we were released. You know, and uh, and here, my father-in-law was a uh, was a member of the Order of the British Empire, and he was a major uh, uh, decorated man, and and served in the British and the Canadian Army. So so for someone like him, and also his incredible wife, my mother-in-law, who didn't live long enough to see the children, they were so kind to me just totally accepted. We had a big wedding with their relatives and everybody. And so so I had started out my life so well without even thinking about the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so then uh, while I was um, married and had my two sons, I came to the realization that I am still different, that my, my children were experiencing the fact that I was different, that uh, their, uh, their school children, their classmates, the classmates don't know their kids. So they hear this from their parents. So, so I began to realize that they were, they were uh, um, experiencing this. And, uh, and I think I mentioned one about my five-year-old second son who, uh, who was told by his neighbor uh, uh, friend that he was Chinese. You know, meaning that he's Asian, and uh, because in those days in Winnipeg, uh, Japanese were just starting to come to the city. The only Asians they knew were Chinese. So, anyways, uh, that really made me begin to think about who I was again, and how it's affecting my children. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when I began to uh, change the way I was thinking. And it was a rather a sad period because I was also working as a volunteer in, in school committees and things. But then during that time too, I, I was experiencing some rude remarks from uh, the community. So, so, you know, I had to kind of uh, look at myself again and then began to think again, who am I? I was born in Canada, don't know Japan, but uh, who am I that I am treated in this way? And my children are now affected. Mm -hmm. And now we're kind of seeing it all happen again, aren't we, Grace, exactly. with the COVID? Exactly. Yeah. And you took a turn, and, and I found it fascinating, too, not only about learning more about Winnipeg and the Japanese community, but also in Vancouver. Um, you know, the, the Powell Street neighborhood or whatever, and, you, and the festivals. Um, you're back in Vancouver now. What is it like? Well, excuse me. Um, until, uh, you know, recently, uh, I never heard, uh, I can't say never, but I, I never concerned me that there were racists out there. Uh, but, but I have to admit that... Uh, uh, ever since the, uh, the COVID-19 began, uh, uh, I remember one time we, uh, I was with friends in uh, Stevenson's uh, Gary Park mm -hmm. and uh, being yelled at by a middle-aged huge guy, go back where you came from. And, and uh, I didn't have, if I had uh, expected it, I would have said back to him, you go back where you come from. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, 
and where do you come from? <laughs> so, uh, and then all I did was yell back stupid to him. <laughs> you got to be careful, Grace, but I know you've got some fight in you. <laughs> but it is true that uh, it's, um, we've, uh, we're going, we, we, not this much, but I think that because there will always be stupid people. Mm -hmm. And I had come to the conclusion that it, it's not my problem, it's their problem. Mm -hmm. That they don't have self-esteem, they need others to look down upon. So I, I came to the conclusion that don't think of it as your problem, mm -hmm. it's their problem. Well, no, most definitely. What is your relationship now with your sons and, and you know, your grandchildren? Yeah, actually, um, I have to admit that uh, I felt I was an inadequate mother, even though I was doing my best. The reason being that uh, I realized that my presence was affecting their lives. I, I felt negatively. You know, when I think of it now, I should not have thought that way, mm -hmm. you know, because it, these are facts of Canadian life. And particularly my past was I was living in a, in a, a Canadian racist society. Uh, but my sons were living in a better world. Even so, uh, uh, there were some people who were going to raise it. And when, you're, when your sons are little, it's very difficult to explain to them. Mm -hmm. But uh, 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 I chose the path of educating myself to learn how to find the tools to uh, uh, handle this kind of thing. And so I started uh, my university study as soon as the, the children, uh, my two sons, uh, started school. Mm -hmm. And as I say, when they started school, I realized they were dealing with it on their, without knowing, without knowing what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And uh, except that they know that uh, their mother was treated as different. So when my older son was in first year university and my younger son was in high school, I started, uh, uh, well, before that, when, when as soon as they started school, I started going to evening classes to do, uh, to take some arts courses. And then, uh, and then when, they, when they were older, I, uh, I think I mentioned that I, went to a, um, a meeting of a group of people making art. And uh, in that, and it was in a church basement. And I realized that I had some talent in art, but I like it and I enjoy it. So that's when I, I um, applied to enter into the BFA, uh, it was called Bachelor of Fine Arts then, uh, at the University of Manitoba School of Art. And I was accepted, and I went and I did it. And, uh, and during that time, I was really still dealing with the issue of uh, being a different mother. And uh, I decided to take some more uh, courses in uh, Asian art history. And so I went to, and, and Asian art history was only taught at that time at uh, University of BC. So, uh, my husband was very uh, kind to uh, let me do two years coming back and forth, but uh, essentially 
living rather than in uh, at ABC to do a, a, a graduate studies in Asian art history. And that's when I came to the realization that uh, up to then I was always very skeptical about who I was and what I was. And that's when I, for the first time, felt pride in my ancestry. And, uh, but then I decided that I have to pursue studies further. And that's when I separated. And it was very sad. But I felt that my sons were already knew who they were. And they were both uh, doing very well. But even so, I think it was a, um, not a easy thing for them to face either. But I, I did that. And I, and I think, you know, in retrospect, what a horrible thing I, I did as a mother. But uh, I, I have very good relation with my two sons. And they've done really well themselves, you know, uh, accomplished for themselves. And uh, both of them, one is still living in Winnipeg, but he's a justice in the court of Queen's Bench. And my other son is in Japan running, operating a English language school. So, so I, and I have five great grandchildren, uh, not great, five grandchildren, <laughs> one great grandchild now. So I feel very lucky. But why I'm living in Vancouver is because when you separate, you have to, you have to uh, uh, find ways to make a living for yourself. And, uh, and because I chose art, art does not furnish a lot of money. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. As we all know. And so for me, I had to move from place to place uh, as I needed to because of work experience. And of course, the other thing that I, I may be jumping, but um, in the course of this period, uh, I had experienced other, other uh, um, issues, which I, during the time I was writing my memoir, I realized that uh, within the memoir, sexism came into play. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it wasn't just about racism for a woman. Mm -hmm. No, and yes, and that's very clear in your book too. Well, I have to say though, Grace, through all of this though, and as you're talking about your relationship with your sons, your grandchildren, your great-grandchild, the book, you know, maybe coming to peace with yourself too as well, you have to feel happy now, Grace. Or is there still things left un unsaid? Or is there th still things for you to do? You must feel happy. Well, I, I am uh, I am happy that uh, the book, my memoir became a book <laughs> to be shared with many others mm -hmm. because I had intended it only for my family when I was writing it. But I think that uh, in time, well, other people, I shouldn't say other people because I have never shared it with anyone except that I I was very lucky to be introduced to uh, a noted uh, um editor, Barbara Pulling, and Barbara uh, read it, and, uh, and she suggested that I should take it to a publisher. And I hadn't thought about it till then. I just wanted to produce something. I was going to self-publish to give to my kids. 
And, but when she suggested it and gave me a couple of names to, that I might access, so I chose Cape and Press because I knew they did a, they did a lot of women issues things. So and they accepted it without within two days they accepted it. <laughs> so that gave me courage to mm -hmm. move forward with it. Yeah. And uh, so then, so for me now, what I feel very happy about is that I hadn't realized it until then that uh, my story was relevant to other young people too. And, uh, and because of my age uh, through the years working in, in communities, uh, I would say, and, and moving from here to here, doing curatorial work and that, I'm more involved with younger people. In fact, at my age, I hardly know anybody, any, hardly know many seniors. <laughs> <laughs> oh so my goodness. Yes. But I'm, I'm lucky because the young generations have been very supportive and given me a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. No. Well, yeah, like you said, your story resonates with so many women. And again, just knowing who you are and learning more about your culture has certainly helped me a lot, uh, you know, and, and piecing together a lot of the same history from my family. And I really thank you for this gift. It's been a wonderful, wonderful read. and all these different relationships now that uh, that we now have together. So thank you so much, Grace. It's been an honor. Can't wait for the next book. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I, uh, somebody said that to me the other day, and I said, yes, when I'm 100, I, <laughs> I'll put another one out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. Well, we want to give a big thank you to all of our special guests on today's show and leave you with this question. What are you going to do for yourself personally during this third lockdown and why? We really want to know, so send us an email to hello at ilikehugh.com or message us on Facebook and Instagram at ilikehew. But for now, stay safe and stay healthy and we'll see you next time on Hugh at Home. Listening. This has been a production of iLikeQ.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. 
Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.